This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for February 8th, 2019. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. As U.S. troops prepare to leave Syria, what's next for this war-torn country and the region overall? President Trump is declaring victory in the U.S.-led battle against ISIS, stating that the terror group has essentially lost all of the territory it once controlled in Syria and in neighboring Iraq. Up next, our conversation with Gail Zamak Laman. She serves as an adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. The New York Times bestselling author is currently working on a new book examining life inside Syria. She has been to the country on a number of occasions in the last 18 months. And her book, Ashley's War, is now being turned into a major motion picture. She's written columns for the Financial Times, Christian Science Monitor, Newsweek, and the New York Times. A graduate of the University of Missouri, she earned her master's in business from Harvard and has had a first-hand view of the destruction inside Syria at a high price for those who have remained in the country. We begin, though, with President Trump on what he is calling a victory over ISIS. The United States military, our coalition partners, and the Syrian Democratic Forces have liberated virtually all of the territory previously held by ISIS in Syria and Iraq. That announcement from President Trump, Gail Zemak Laman, as an adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, is he correct? He is. So the U.S.-backed forces have spent the last four years battling ISIS at very close range in cities, in villages, and now uh, in the last of the combat in a kind of corner of Syria where they have holed up. The question, though, is how do you defeat the ideology and how do you keep them beaten? Because what I've seen is that reemergence, right, the, the return of ISIS, is the concern in cities like Raqqa, which are enjoying a really fragile stability in the moments uh, in, in the year since ISIS has been defeated. There has been one explanation, and it may be uh, too simplistic, but referring to this as whack-a-mole, where you may eliminate them in one area, they will pop up in another. ISIS is nothing if not resilient. And that is the thing that I think people don't appreciate is that so, for example, in Raqqa, let's take that this was one time capital of of the ISIS uh, territory. Uh, I met a lot of people who would talk to me about how they would talk to me. They were happy to be interviewed, but they didn't want their picture taken because the big fear is that the very fragile normalcy they're holding on to and that's allowing them to send their kids to school will go away in a moment, right? And everyone knows ISIS is trying to return. Um, I was doing an interview with a commander uh, that I had planned for about a week, and she called me about an hour late and said, you know, I'm I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to make it because as we were leaving Raqqa, ISIS placed an explosive under the car of my teammate, and we had to drive her to the hospital three hours away in Kamashi. And she survived, but she lost her leg. And that's what you see ISIS doing, is trying to really undermine the fragile stability, the really kind of teetering normalcy that Raqqa and other cities are very much enjoying right now. What is ISIS? Who is behind it? Right. So this is a collection of uh, Sunni fighters who have a great deal of experience. Uh, Now they are really focused on 
if they can't build the physical caliphate, they can build this virtual caliphate. And they want to kind of return to a, to a time uh, where, you know, the uh, Sharia law was very much in place. And they, they have this vision of what the world should look like with basically women's enslavement, very much a part of it, with um, extremism very much at the center. And this is what they are trying to build uh, throughout the region. And really, if you think back to 2014, they were not very far from succeeding in terms of they had taken Mosul, they had taken Raqqa, and then they aimed for the uh, northeast Syrian town of Kobani. You have been in Syria on how many occasions over the last year and a half? Five times uh, since August of 2017. How do you get there? Uh, you get there through north, uh, through northern Iraq and you cross the border. Any concerns for your own safety? Of course. But I do think that what you are humbled by is the grace of the people around you and the people who don't have passports, right? And the moms that you meet, you know, the mothers who um, so bravely took themselves and their families out of Raqqa during the siege of Raqqa. You know, one woman I met is eight and a half months pregnant, led her entire family out of Raqqa, gave everything to smugglers, including all her savings, all the gold, was part of a five-car convoy to escape the city facing ISIS snipers and landmines, and actually the fifth car in the five-car convoy that was aimed at escaping blew up when it drove over an ISIS mine. And she said to me, I refuse to have a child born under ISIS. I refuse to have a baby that comes into a world in which these people are leading. And that grace, that strength, I think is what stays with you, and you always work to be worthy, really, of the strength and the courage that people around you possess in abundance. I want to come back to more of what you've seen inside Syria, but I want to share with you and our listeners what CBS News reporter Charlie Daggett saw on the front lines in Syria just this past week. We weren't expecting a U.S.-led coalition airstrike to land so close to us. Another one. Or what came next. Down the wall, down the wall. That whirring noise feared to be the sound of an incoming ISIS mortar that flew right over our heads, sending everyone scrambling and taking cover. Soldiers told us we had no choice but to run into the open single file to reach a safer place. U.S. forces and allies have now reduced ISIS territory to the point where everything has become close combat. Even getting to the front line this morning meant a dash through the desert at breakneck speed, quickly covering ground where ISIS could mount sneak attacks. We've been taken to a rooftop position about as far as we can go, where we can see about what's left of ISIS. We weren't there long before twin airstrikes pounded positions right in front of us. In the distance, we witnessed the ISIS dream of a caliphate in its dying days. After all the fighting and lives lost, this is what it comes down to. A terror group that once held territory about the size of Indiana has been reduced to that, an area of just a couple square miles. The reporting of Charlie Daggett and the full story is available online at cbsnews.com. And you're shaking your head as you listen to his reporting. It just matches everything. Uh, even when I was there in December talking to U.S.-backed forces, they said, look, like they are dug in. And a lot of people who had fled from the ISIS fight in other places to basically make this last stand are there fighting. And uh, so, yes, it's a very close quarters fight, and it's a very brutal fight. The country, the landscape, 
looks absolutely horrific. It looks like a war zone that it is. And my question is, daily life for the people inside Syria, and I know that there are different pockets around the country, so it varies from place to place. It's a very localized conflict. You know, I remember asking my driver and my colleague saying, you know, how far would we, how long would it take us to reach a Russian checkpoint? He's like, ah, maybe, you know, X amount of minutes. And, and how long would it take us to reach a, a regime checkpoint? X amount of minutes, right? I mean, you're not talking hours, right? This is a very localized conflict and every pocket is different. But, you know, for example, in the town of Kobani, they have this kind of Champs-Élysées of shops, right? And you can see little girls sparkling pink sneakers and kind of a fake Starbucks poster of one of the coffee shops there. It's very much a sense of normalcy. Um, the city of Topka, you can go and walk around, uh, which was liberated, I think, in May of 17. Um, you can walk around uh, the marketplace, and you wouldn't necessarily know what the city had been through until you turned maybe to your right and saw a building that had been bombed that would, had been in ISIS hands. And then there's Raqqa, which is a city that in April looked like a real ghost town that was just coming back to life after a very, very bad dream. And then you come back in August and you start to see maybe, you know, double the number of streets are open. Um, and then by December, there were genuine traffic jams. So the, the desire of people to push forward on their own for their own lives is very real. And, and in this foreign affairs beat I wrote, I, I wrote about this perfume entrepreneur. So I, we came in in April and the only, it was rubble, rubble, rubble and a perfume shop on this one street. And I said, you know, who starts a perfume shop, you know, months after ISIS when there's so much else that the city needs? And as it turned out, I finally found him in December. And he said, you know, business was, you know, maybe 20 or 30 customers a day in April. But, it, you know, everybody needs cigarettes and everybody needs to smell good. So these are not luxury items. So, of course, we opened the perfume shop in April. And, you know, a couple months ago, I put on Facebook that my perfume shop was open, and now we have 50 or 60 customers a day, women and men. So that's what you see, right? Entrepreneurs, moms, dads, just people getting on with it. And what about President Assad? What is the end game for him? What does he want beyond the power? He has always wanted survival, and he has proven very adept at winning it. Because there is no question that the Russians and the Iranians have been 100% all in for the regime since the very beginning of this, with, with the Russian uh, support for the regime increasing over time. But they have never wavered. Whereas the United States, people would say, you know, we're, in 2013, 2014, people were trying to figure out what is the U.S. policy. We had said... Uh, under the Obama administration, that the time has come for Assad to step aside. But we did not take the steps because, you know, President Obama felt he had been elected to end wars in the Middle East, not begin them. And so for a couple of years, people were trying to figure out what is the American policy. Then came ISIS, and the U.S. policy really focused on countering ISIS. They built the counter-ISIS coalition, uh, and really the U.S. policy was very much focused on routing ISIS. And it's the U.S.-backed forces of the Syrian Democratic Forces, and I hope your listeners don't get confused with this whole alphabet soup, when the really important point is the U.S. has basically started to work with the local force, which started as majority Kurd and then became very much uh, more, much more mixed as time went on and they entered Arab territories of young people who were willing to fight and die in the fight against ISIS. And in the towns of Kobani and Kamishli and lots of other places, you can see row after row of white marble tombstones of young women and young men who've given their lives in this ISIS fight backed by the United States. Beyond the military, 
what is our intelligence like in trying to track ISIS, its leaders, its motivations, and its operations? You know, the fact is that the United States has been adept at keeping its ear to the ground through U.S.-backed forces. Uh, and so you do, you know, it's really fascinating to talk to fight forces who have fought ISIS for years. And one young woman, one female commander who's fought them since 2014 in Kobani, she talks about ISIS with this intimacy, with this real connection of, you know, what they did in Kobani in 2014 is not what their leaders are doing now in Raqqa in 2018 and 2019, you know. And so the U.S.-backed forces in the United States, I think, are in very close connection. And the U.S.-backed forces have worked very hard to keep a very close eye on uh, ISIS fighters as they return, because a lot of them have returned, you know, at least some of them have returned to their families uh, after the ISIS fight. And also just really trying to keep pressure, extreme pressure on the leadership as they get increasingly savvy about how, uh, you know, the U.S.-backed coalition goes after them and how they can evade that pursuit. What is so evident, having talked to you on so many different occasions here on C-SPAN, and we always appreciate your time and insights, is that this is more than just a story for you. This is your passion. You know, every one of us, I think, who has the privilege of seeing people's lives up close in some of the toughest moments and seeing people with a strength and a generosity and a will to push forward amid obstacles that I think, you know, you and I would find enormously challenging. You know, I think often of this teacher I met in Raqqa. Um, she told me she had come back right after Raqqa was liberated. Uh, her father said, you know, our house is destroyed because of the coalition airstrikes designed to rout ISIS, but that's okay. You go straight to school and fix the school because the school is more important than our home. So we interviewed this woman. She told us she had spent a month with her fellow teachers. None of them had organized previously. They just happened to find themselves back at school because it's where everybody came after the city was liberated. And these teachers spent a month with their own expenses trying to get the rubble out, trying to rebuild the school and get it ready. And she said at the beginning when we first opened our doors, about 500 kids came. And then by now, this was April and then again in December, we have about 1,500 little people who come every single day. And you hear them shouting the A to Zs in Arabic with like this joy of being back in the classroom. And these young people saw beheadings. These little ones saw hangings. You know, their parents would cover their eyes as they walked on the street every single morning. And I think, you know, to me, if these little people and their teachers and their parents who are living on the very front lines of the fight against extremism, can fight every single day for something better for the next generation, fight against extremism so that the U.S. doesn't ever have to be back there. Um, to me, that is a story that you have to share. And it gets so lost in this whole idea that all of the post-9-11 conflicts have been just one big morass that have only cost American treasure. And, and I, you know, as somebody who's been embedded in the lives of Gold Star families, I take that very, very seriously. But when you talk to U.S. forces on the ground, to the Americans, and you see the U.S.-backed forces, you know, you feel this responsibility to tell, come back and tell people, this isn't what you think in northeast Syria. This is actually a story of very fragile progress and forward momentum amid enormous challenge. And, of course, our history is full of stories of the impact that wars have had on generations. And as you tell the story inside Syria— my question is, what impact this is going to have on this generation as they get older? And how does this end? How does Syria begin to really rebuild itself? There, those are two just urgent questions. You know, I think so much about how does it impact this current generation. 
One thing that struck me so much interviewing 17 and 18-year-olds, you know, one young woman I interviewed was 16, two children. One was two and a half. One was six months old. And this was in, in the middle of the ISIS fight in the summer of 17. She said, I used to dream of being a flight attendant or being a pilot. But then the war came and my parents married me off because they were so worried about what was going to happen to me with this war coming. And she said, every girl in my class either went missing, was kidnapped, or um, was married off. And she said, and I'm lucky because at least I like my husband. And she said, all my hopes now are for my children. We have no hope for our generation. It's all about our children. And you hear a 16-year-old saying that, and you think, holy cow, you know, what is this going to mean? For the little ones, and then I try to contrast that with the joy that those little people who lived under ISIS as, as three and four-year-olds bring uh, to the school. And I think it's that generation. You talk to young women joining the all-women's forces uh, to protect the cities of Raqqa and Tabqa, and they'll talk to you about how it's all for the next generation so little girls never have to face what they did. And this will all be in your next book? <laughs> yes, I'm working on a, a next book that's really about uh, what ISIS has left in its wake, which is the, the most far-reaching experiment in women's equality and the absolute least likely place in the world, brought to you by young women who spent four years you know, battling ISIS and are building kind of the closest thing to an equal society in their experiment that, that we've seen in the absolute last place in the world you'd expect to see it. And Gail Lamont, I have to ask you about your other bestseller, Ashley's War, the untold story of a team of women soldiers on the special ops battlefield. Now coming to a movie theater? It is in uh, development. As, as uh, some of you might know, the process of becoming a film takes a very long time. But we have a tremendous team. And uh, yes, it is in process. And I hope to have a lot more news for you very soon. And I promise to come back when I do. What's that like, though, to have a book turned into a movie? I have been so fortunate just in the team that we have. You know, it's Fox 2000 and, and Reese Witherspoon and Bruna Papandrea who are doing Big Little Lies. And it's a slow process because, you know, making the stars align, <laughs> quite literally, uh, is, is a whole process there in that universe. But, you know, I could not ask for a team that cares more about the story and that is more dedicated to getting it right. How did your career begin here in Washington? Oh, my goodness. I was um, a kid from PG County, so I went to PG County Public Schools, which actually at that point was, you know, eight miles and 800 worlds away from official Washington. In Maryland, which In Maryland, out. that's right. So I, I grew up in Maryland with uh, my, my aunt put phones in the Senate office buildings. My godmother worked overnights at the government printing office. My mom put phones on the House side of the Capitol. And so everybody... I knew worked touched the federal government in some way, um, but not in kind of the officialdom universe. And so then I got a job uh, wrapping cables and booking crews for the BBC and then went to CBS News and then from CBS went to uh, CNN.com. And at that point, people said, what is that dot com thing? Why are you going to ruin your career on go to this whole online thing? You know, nobody's going to get their news from a computer. Well, let me go back to the issue of ISIS and the president. More of what he said this past week and get your reaction. Over the past two years, we have retaken more than 20,000 square miles of land. We have secured one battlefield. And we've had victory after victory after victory and retaken both Mosul and Raqqa. We have eliminated more than 60-mile high-value ISIS leaders. So we have a uh, — if you look at the ISIS leaders of the 
60 top. We've eliminated almost every one of them. Now, they reform. We know that. But they're having a hard time reforming. And I wouldn't say it's a great job to have because of us. It's not exactly — hopefully, will not be a sought-after occupation. More than 100 other top ISIS officials have, have been eliminated. And tens of thousands of ISIS fighters are gone. They're gone. And I guess the obvious question is, once the U.S. is gone, then what? So the president is quite right about the battlefield victories that the U.S.-backed forces have achieved with the Americans in an advise and assist role and U.S.-backed Syrian forces taking the casualties, taking the real brunt of the physical uh, losses of that fight. The question is, what comes next, right? Because the minute that the pressure is off, reemergence or the return of ISIS is very possible because they basically look for pockets where they can return and reform. And even this uh, last December in Raqqa, people were saying, listen, be careful, you know, because we keep hearing that there are more sleeper cells and they're working very hard every night to keep the pressure on them. So that was kind of the, the whispering um, of information that you would hear. And the U.S. has been kind of this magic lasso that has been sitting over the region. It has kept the Russians from invading. It has kept the regime from returning in full strength. It has kept the Turks from invading. And it has kept ISIS from returning. And the question is, what happens if and as the U.S. leaves without a plan for keeping a sort of protective barrier over those U.S.-backed forces, particularly the Kurdish forces? And it would be, to me, such a loss in the fight against ISIS if the forces who the U.S. has backed had to then step away from the ISIS fight to defend their families against a Turkish offensive. And that's really what they are most concerned about. One other point from the president as he met with reporters this past week at the White House. He mentioned the cost of war, the soldiers coming back, and the horrific scenes that he's seen at Walter Reed Army Medical Center here in Washington, D.C. He also made the point, 17, 18 years in the Middle East, a cost of $7 trillion for what? These are all very important questions. I mean, he's correct both about the cost of war and also about the length of what's happening. And to the point about Syria and the gains that have been achieved on the battlefield. The question is, how do you keep a war ended? And how do you keep the pressure on if a real force like ISIS that can transform and that really has proven the reality that it is much easier to kill a terrorist than to slay an idea? How do you keep the pressure on so that mothers I met who are so excited to send their kids to school in Raqqa, the one-time caliphate, a street where women were bought and sold, and now women work in the civil council and women work as teachers. How do you keep that fragile stability so that people on the ground there can lead their own fight against, the, against extremism? How do you let them keep leading the battle against extremism with their lives every single day as they push forward with normalcy? And that, to me, is the question, because there is a difference between Iraq and Afghanistan and northeast Syria. Those are three very different conflicts. And I do think in as the years go by, the American public has kind of put them all together in our minds. And we do need to pull out the fact that Afghanistan is different from Syria, which is different from Iraq. And of course, the horrific events on September 11, 2001, remind us on that question, how do you slay an idea? 
which is really what this is all about. Absolutely. And how do you keep young people from joining that, which is the job of so many of the moms I've met, right? They say, we don't want our children joining ISIS. We want them to have some other option. It's why we need the schools open. It's why we need to be able to support uh, our, our children. You know, one hairdresser I met, she did the hair of ISIS wives during uh, the ISIS occupation of Raqqa. And she said, you know, there was even an American who used to come in. And she would talk to me about just a little bit about, you know, being fearful and just worried about her kids. And she said, my dream is to have the biggest hair salon in Rucka. And then this December when we went back, she said, you know, I, I can't talk to you right now because I actually opened my own salon. And I have three clients right now. And if you come back in an hour, I can talk to you. And that, to me, is the progress, right? It's those lives that are on the front lines of extremism. And I think the difference in northeast Syria is that there is not a huge U.S. troop presence. You don't see the Americans almost anywhere uh, as you're moving around the area because it's a fairly limited footprint led by special operations uh, and, and their enablers. You are fluent in how many languages? <laughs> Four and three quarters. How about that? <laughs> What's the three quarters? So Farsi and some mix of Farsi and Dari. So you are able to blend in. Do they know you're an American? <laughs> well, actually, my father was uh, was born in Baghdad. Uh, so you know, I, I have always been helped by the fact that you can listen and learn, and my coloring kind of allows me to to, to blend in in a lot of these places. And truly, at the end of the day, it's about showing up and listening to people. And having respect for how much people have seen and the grace which, with which they've persevered. As you know, the president has a lot of critics. One of them is former Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel. He was on CNN last month and said this. Well, first of all, um, I think the president really doesn't understand foreign policy, uh, how it's made, interests, consequences, allies, and I, I think the, the proof of that is certainly in uh, whatever his so-called Syrian policy is. Would you agree or disagree? I would say let's look at the Syria policy because for this administration, for years, it was really a continuation of the Obama-era foreign policy in northeast Syria, right, which is you work with the local forces and you uh, really support them as they lead the ISIS fight. Now, what comes next is the big question, and I think that will determine the U.S. legacy in this region. Will the U.S. forces be able to win over another partner force if it's seen as abandoning the force which fought and died over and over again in the ISIS fight? I think that is a concern that some uh, U.S. forces have. You know, how do we do this again if we are seen in the region as having abandoned uh, U.S.-backed forces. And I do think that there's some room, and I don't, you know, my hope is that over time people will come to see that this is actually a story of very fragile progress that should not be left to the fortunes and to whatever forces come in after the U.S. And this is a two-part question, a follow-up. First of all, how long do you think Assad stays in power, and what is Russia's interest in Syria? I see no evidence that Assad is going anywhere anytime soon other than perhaps a day trip to Tehran or Moscow. None. And Russia, you know, Russia has all a number of interests. First of all, a, a, a seaport that it has access to because of its relationship with the Assad regime. Secondly, it thwarts the United States and its influence in the region. And there's no question... You know, I had an Obama-era administration official tell me something that has stayed with me 
since 2015 or 16 when they said it, which is that um, Russia determined facts on the ground in Syria, and it did what it wanted. It brought the EU to its knees, and all it had to do was drop some bombs on Aleppo. Because in 2016, and the refugee crisis is created, Angela Merkel faces a million people coming to Germany's shores. Uh, The world is sort of paying attention to this huge outflow of people who are watching their homes be obliterated by Russian air power. And so, you know, this is something that has been years in the making, and it's an overnight crisis that has taken us basically eight years to reach. In your essays, in your columns, in your teaching, and in your books— you, you put a face to all of this, which I think is so important. Thank you. It means a lot coming from you, uh, very much so. And, and it is a privilege to do it, to, for people to trust you enough to allow you to enter their lives for a moment, and sometimes in some of their most difficult moments. And I think for me it all comes back to being raised at, in a community of single moms and people who are underestimated from the outside, who people sort of saw as this faceless, you know, lower, upper lower class, <laughs> lower middle class, probably closer to upper lower class, um, community of single moms who didn't have college degrees, who didn't come from any kind of educated backgrounds, but who taught us how to go to work. And they taught us how to see beyond what other people saw. Right. And how to not put labels on people, but how to actually go in and see for ourselves what was happening. And, and I've never forgotten what a privilege that is. And finally, and you've given a couple of examples of people that you've met along the way. But for the people of Syria that just want to live their lives, what would you tell an American audience? I would say that the moms I've met share the exact same values you do. You know, these moms, one mom I met who uh, had a baby that was four pounds, born uh, a month and a half premature in a camp for the displaced. And she said, you know, nobody thought my baby was going to live, but I just felt like she would. And now she has a job with an NGO and a charity that's in this camp for the displaced. All three of her kids are in school. And she said, you know, all we want is to do the work ourselves of getting our kids a future that looks nothing like what we've seen this generation. We look forward to your next book, and you'll be back in Syria again? Uh, I hope so. That's the plan. Gail Zamak-Laman, thank you very much for stopping by the C-SPAN studios. Great to join you. And we thank you for listening. A reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app, online anytime at c-span.org.